All right, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, good morning, and welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. That down right there. All right. So, for those that do not have a book, please grab a handout. Take a pass. Hey, uh, are we out? Huh? What are the odds? Check in that other basket in the corner. All right, and take a pass. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Um, okay. So we are continuing our discussion of victory of light. It's really quiet in here, right? You notice that? It's like super formal. You got one? Was there? Okay. Um, okay. Good. Victory of light. So Hanukkah is around the corner. Yes. Festival of lights. We have to know what it's all really, really about because, folks, Hanukkah is not your parents' dreidel. Something like that. Hanukkah is not just dreidels and latkes and, and donuts and gelt, although that's, all those things are very critical. Hanukkah is so much more than that. And this text, Victory of Light, the objective is to explain the story of Hanukkah and the customs of Hanukkah, the mitzvot, the observances of Hanukkah from a mystical place, through the lens of the mystics, of the Kabbalists, and not only through a Kabbalistic like supernatural mystical lens, but from a very practical, applied mystical uh, lens. All right. So last week, what did we do last week? Through this, what we did in the first few, the first two sessions of Victory of Light, we kind of described a little bit about the story of Hanukkah, the miracle of Hanukkah, and the observance of Hanukkah. And what we came to the conclusion. The conclusion that we came to was that the main observance of Hanukkah is, what do we do? What's the main mitzvah? Lighting the candles, lighting the menorah. The way we light the menorah is significant. Where we put the menorah is significant. When we light the menorah is significant. And the point of the opening chapter of Victory of Light is to tell us, or is to open up our eyes to the fact that almost everything that we do with our Hanukkah menorah is different than how they did it with the temple menorah back in the day. In other words, when you look at when you look at the menorah as we light it, and you think to yourself, "Well, why do we light the menorah?" Oh, because there was a because there was a miracle that happened with the temple menorah and the oil in the temple. But when you look, when you compare the two menorahs, you notice some significant differences between the two. To the point that our conclusion in this text is going to be that they represent completely different ideas and ideals. Although we light a menorah, and there was a menorah in the temple, they're very, very different. And the difference is highlighted by some very practical distinctions that we find in the observance and in, the, uh, in, in, the, uh, in how we do the mitzvah of lighting the menorah. So for example, remember I gave this out last week? those that, that were here. So this, this little depiction here shows the temple menorah. The temple menorah had seven branches. Our Hanukkah menorah has not seven branches. It has eight branches plus one as a ninth branch. So we have, but there are eight, eight, uh, eight mitzvah branches. So eight branches instead of seven. That's one distinction. Another distinction we pointed out is where are these menorahs lit? 
The temple menorah was lit. Remember, I showed you a picture of the, of the temple last week. Where is the temple menorah lit? In, remember the menorah? Where is the menorah lit? Inside? Right, outside the Holy of Holies, but inside the sanctuary itself, inside what's called the Heichel, inside the actual, if you would call it, temple building, inside that actual building. That's where the menorah is situated. So the menorah in the temple menorah is an inner, an inner type of service. Where do we light our menorahs? But where? What's what is what? What is Jewish? So what did the Talmud tell us? Where's ideally? Where do we? What's the first choice? If you have the choice, where do you light it? Outside. You see the distinction. The temple menorah is lit inside, not in the holiest of holy chambers, because that was only once a year that that the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, went in there. But the menorah in the temple was a service, was an avodah, was a, was a spiritual service, and a temple service that occurred inside, in a sense. In, a, in an inner sanctuary, in a quiet place. As a, Which one was the menorah inside the Hechel? The menorah, you can see it. First of all, you see Hechel? You see the word Hechel? Hechel? Okay, so look to the right of Hechel. You see the little square? You see, okay, here, right here, boom. That's not, well, that's not it. That's the, uh, that's the, but it's a landmark. That's the, uh, that's the inner altar where they did the incense. If you look, if you keep on going toward the right, toward the top, you see like a cell phone wire, look like cell phone reception. So the temple got full bars. No, the, can you hear me now? God. They had a good reception. You're trying to talk to God, you gotta, you got to make that happen. But it's actually the steps that goes up to that menorah that shows it as a curved menorah, which it wasn't. Which it wasn't. By the way, if you don't have last week's handout, you're missing out. Pass these down. Please. Pass these down because it's super cool. Anybody need around here? Pass it down. We're all amongst friends. Right. Yeah, it's double-sided. So the second side, the one that looks like the temple side is... Indeed, the temple side. But here's my point. It's a very simple point. Look at where the menorah is in the temple. Where is it? It's in the inside. It's behind closed doors. The public, listen to this, the public could never see that menorah. You know why? Why? Who can tell me why? I couldn't go in. It couldn't go in. Only the coin that was doing the service walked in there. And not only that, but if you look at the top picture, right, the one that actually shows a model of what the temple looked like, so you see that big structure, the tall structure, inside there was the menorah, but if you notice the doorway, it's not open, where you think like it's just wide open like that, no, there's a curtain, it's blocked off, which means that when you lit the menorah in the temple, it wasn't on display, guess what, what about our menorahs, on display, on display, what he's pointing out here, and what we're going to get to is the understanding that although they're both called menorahs, theoretically, they couldn't be more different. Not only different, opposite. The temple menorah is seven branches. Seven is nature. Our menorahs, our Chanukiyas, our candelabras for Hanukkah have eight. Eight is supernatural. The difference between natural and supernatural is not just one. It's not just quantitative, it's qualitative. It's completely different. It's like the difference between something finite and infinite. It's not like, okay, a million is finite, a million and one is infinite. It's not exactly how it works. Infinite is qualitatively 
different than finite. And so when you have seven, which represents nature, which represents the idea of, of something that's finite, as opposed to something that's eight, which represents the supernatural, which represents the infinite, you're not dealing with, with two candelabras, two experiences, two menorahs that are a little bit different. You're dealing with two realities that are completely, completely on opposite ends, completely different. That's what he's trying to point out here at the opening. We're going to continue with a few more ideas. So, again, so far we have the number of branches. We have the location and the placement. Is it inside or outside? Is it a private, a private avodah, private service? Or is it something that's on display? And then you have the next issue, which is the timing. When was the menorah, and this is how we ended, remember, we ended last week quickly. But when, when was the menorah, sorry, when was the temple menorah lit? You remember? Who remembers? It's complicated. Huh? In the afternoon, an hour and a quarter before sunset. In other words, while it was still light outside. When do we light our menorahs? It has to be after dark. It has to be after dark already. The temple menorah was lit before dark. The Hanukkah menorah is lit after dark. And the point is, and again, here you have not just, okay, this was different. This is, this is an hour before, an hour and a half before, this is an hour and a half later. It's not just a timing thing. It represents a completely different universe, a different experience. One is meant to be shining during the day, to, or at least to be lit during the day, and one is meant to be lit at night, after dark. They represent completely different ideas and ideals. And so what we, what we take from, from these points, and there's one more point that I'm going to mention in a moment, is that although, again, I'm just repeating what I said before, although at first glance you would say, we let a menorah in commemoration of the temple menorah and the miracle that happened, and we kind of just like, you know, lump it all together. When you really look with a critical eye, with a discerning eye, and you say, well, hold on, let's look at the particulars of how each one was observed, where it was, when it was lit, what, what was the structure of it, you notice some key fundamental differences. And then you think about one other point, and that is that the sages, because remember, this is not a biblical mitzvah, the menorah is a biblical, is a biblical feature of the temple and of the Mishnah of the sanctuary. God says, when you build for me a temple, it needs to have a menorah, and this is what it should look like. So, so these are per, the, the temple menorahs per God's specs. The sages, years later, centuries later, when the story of Hanukkah happened in the times of the second temple, about 22, 2300 years ago, the sages instituted the holiday of Hanukkah. They knew what the menorah, what the temple menorah looked like. They knew when it was, it was the times of the temple. They knew when it was lit. They knew where it was lit. They knew what it looked like. They were lighting it every single day. That was the miracle. They found the oil to light the menorah. They knew what it looked like. They decided to create a holiday where you do things differently. It wasn't by accident. That's the point. It wasn't by accident that when they established Hanukkah, they said, we're establishing it for the the miracle of the temple menorah, but, you know, we've always wanted to light it outside. Let's light it outside. And, you know, it's nice to have it shining at night, so let's let it... It wasn't casual, it wasn't random. When they specifically deviated from the way that the Temple Menorah is lit, it was intentional, purposeful, and it speaks to the essence of the holiday. And so what we're doing here in the opening is paying attention to the clues, to the subtle clues. See, life, the greatest lessons are found in the 
small details and the subtle clues. Sometimes you get big, loud lessons, but more, more often than not, the lessons that you're getting are more subtle. A clue here, a hint there, a nuance there, a, you know, something unusual happens. So when you have the Hanukkah menorah, that's supposed to be a, 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 what one would think similar and modeled after the temple menorah, but you find these key fundamental differences. I mean, the only similarity is the fact that, you, that it's lit, right? Is the fact that it has oil and fire and, and, and that you light it, you kindle it. Everything else is different. The structure, the placement, the timing, all the details of the menorah. You know, like who, what, where, when, how, whatever. Like pretty much all those details are different. And by the way, who lit the temple menorah? The priest. The Kohen. Who lights the Hanukkah menorah? Everybody. Everybody. It's another distinction. He doesn't mention it, but that's why I'm here. <laughs> right? That's another distinction. The Hanukkah menorah is lit by everybody. Temple menorah only by the Kohen. Inside the sanctuary. During the day while it's still light outside. With the seven branches that represent nature. The Hanukkah menorah lit by everybody outside, after dark, on an eight-branched menorah. And then we get to the final point. And this is not in the order that we mentioned it in the first chapter. But this is the way I want to kind of walk you through it again. The final point, he says, the final clue in this, really to tell us that when we look at Hanukkah, we have to understand that it's, it's so different than the temple experience of lighting the menorah. The final clue is the fact that Shammai in the Talmud Beit Shammai, the Academy of Shammai, compares the lighting of the menorah to the offerings, to the offering of the bulls, of the bullocks, on Sukkot. Which decreased in number each day. So the Academy of Shammai says that likewise, when we light the menorah, the Chanukiah, it should be eight the first night, seven the second night, six, five, four, three, two, one, which we don't follow that opinion. But his point in chapter 1 is to say, although we don't follow the opinion, the fact that such a, such a, the fact that that type of equivalency, that type of comparison is made in the first place, tells us that our menorah, and the fact that, that Hillel, who says you do 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, like we practice, the fact that Hillel doesn't say, what are you talking about comparing it to the bullocks of Sukkot? This is like the Hanukkah menorah, this is the menorah of the temple. The fact that Hillel doesn't, attack on those grounds. Beit Hillel, the Academy of Hillel just says, look, we always increase in matters of holiness. But he doesn't attack, he doesn't, he doesn't seek to weaken the, the, the equivalency, that comparison in and of itself teaches us that our Chanukiyas, our Hanukkah menorahs have more in common with the offerings of the bulls and Sukkot than with the lighting of the menorah itself. You hear that? Our lighting of the menorah has more in common with something completely different, something that is completely different than the lighting of the temple menorah, i.e., the, uh, the, the offerings of the bulls on Sukkot, on the altar, and the outer altar. There's more in common with that service than with the menorah itself. Even though it's a menorah, it's a candelabra, and we light it with oil ideally. It has more in common with, a, with something completely different. Make sense? It doesn't have to make sense. It just makes sense. Good. Yes? All right. You guys are easy today. <laughs>
we get the essence of the explanation. Yeah. Let's jump in. Chapter 2. Chapter 2, page 30. In this chapter, just to give you a heads up, in this chapter what we're going to do is present the essence of the explanation. The essence of the explanation is going to capture the entire explanation. So in chapter 2, you're going to have the answer to all of the questions. But you're not going to know that you have the answer. <laughs> okay, in chapter 2, you're going, to ha- you're going to get the answer to all of the questions that we asked. And everything, everything will be answered in chapter 2. The only problem is you're not going to see the answer in chapter 2. It's going to have to develop. It's like the seed, it's like the kernel that has all the information, but it's not yet developed. It's like a seed of a tree. So that's like an apple tree seed. So you look at the seed. That's an apple tree. It's not an apple tree. Come on. It's not a, I don't see apples. Where's the tree? Show me the tree. Show me the bark. Right? The reds. Huh? The reds. Yeah, there's nothing there. So but it's like, oh, it's the nakuda. It's the kernel. It's the seed. It's the essence. You have to let it develop. You have to plant it. You have to internalize it. Let it develop. And that's what chapters 3 and on do. It develops this core idea. As it's expressed in chapter 2, it's expressed, the core idea is expressed in very mystical terms, very Kabbalistic terms. And then, in, starting from chapter 3 and on, what, what the text does is it breaks down these very esoteric concepts and makes them very relevant, very real, very practical, very accessible, so that you and I can immediately relate to this idea. What were the Greeks doing? What did they want? What was their beef with the Jews? Why were they fighting? What was the oil about? What was the miracle? Why do we have the menorah with all these distinctions, as we mentioned before? All of that will be developed starting from chapter 2, but really explained in detail beginning from chapter 3. So chapter 2 is cool, because here you see kind of how the mystics would speak to each other. In other words, if you were a mystic, right? And we all are mystics on our own level. But if you were like a a well-seasoned mystic, like a mystic in maybe a secret society. We're not so secret here. A little bit secret, but not so secret. If you were a secret society mystic, and you would ask the question about Hanukkah, you would get the answer in chapter 2. And then you would understand the whole thing. But because maybe we need a little bit more explanation, that's why it doesn't end after chapter 2. We have chapters 3 and beyond. Make sense? This is kind of the roadmap. So let's, let's put on our mystic hat, and let's try to decipher the Kabbalah that is, uh, that is taught in chapter 2 to explain these uh, nuances of the Hanukkah menorah and indeed the whole spirit of the Hanukkah celebration in the first place. David, take it away if you will. The essence of the explanation is that the function of the Hanukkah lights is to illuminate the darkness. Mm. What a simple explanation. What a simple point. And it comes at the he- on the heels of the final question that we asked in chapter 1. What was the final question? And we remember? The, the last, the, the, we, had, we had like three or four questions in chapter one. The last question was the one about timing. Remember the one about timing? So why is it when the sun sets? Yeah, the temple menorah was lit while it was still light. Hanukkah menorah is lit specifically after dark. You're not allowed to, you're not supposed to light it during the day. It doesn't count. It has to be after sunset. Why? Why is it different than the temple menorah? So he says that Nukudat Habir, but the essence or the kernel, the point of the explanation is that what is the function of the Hanukkah lights? To illuminate darkness. Which, by the way, wasn't necessarily the purpose of the, of the temple menorah. Temple menorah had its own purpose. Not to illuminate darkness. The Hanukkah menorah, 
Because indeed this is the whole story of Hanukkah, is to illuminate darkness. Therefore it makes good sense why you have to light it after, after dark. Because if you don't light it after dark, you're missing the point. The point is that you have darkness, you feel the darkness, you see the darkness, you experience the darkness, and then you introduce light. So you have to light the Hanukkah lights after nightfall. And guess what? That's why you don't light it inside the temple. Where do you light it? I'm just kind of giving too much away. Huh? You light it outside. You light it by the streets. Spiritual, a place of spiritual darkness. Right? You take it because the whole point of Hanukkah. And again, this is, it's important to know what we came in thinking and what we're going to walk away thinking. You come in thinking, Hanukkah, it's nice, it's cute, we light a menorah, we play dreidel, we eat latkes, and we light the menorah because they lit a menorah in the temple and there was a miracle, so we light it, it's all the same thing. And Kabbalah says it's not the same thing. They also had a candelabra, and we light a candelabra, but they could not find two opposite types of services. It's completely different. The temple menorah, we're not speaking about that right now, but the temple menorah had its function, and the Hanukkah menorah is to illuminate the darkness. And, that's, and, and that wasn't the purpose of the, of the temple menorah. It wasn't to illuminate darkness. Maybe to bring more light, it was to, to, to whatever it was, we're going to get into it soon. But the, temp, but the Hanukkah menorah is to illuminate darkness, and therefore all of the features that we spoke about before, are there because of this central core purpose. And now he explains, but again, this explanation is still mystical, yeah? This could be literal, but so the function of Hanukkah, so we're talking literally, because the lighting, it's not the lighting of the menorah, it's of Hanukkah. Oh, it says function of the Hanukkah lights. Who said again? Function of the Hanukkah, okay. Lights. Lights, but but here we're talking, because what we do now is Hanukkah, but when the when the te- in the temple, when the menorah was lit, it was not Hanukkah. <sighs> Good question. Right. In other words, when they reclaimed the temple from the Greeks, and they said, hey, we need, to, we need to light the menorah again. They were lighting the temple menorah inside, during the day, etc. We commemorate that by lighting the Hanukkah menorah outside, after dark, on a candelabra, etc. So your question is, I don't know if you had a question, but let me phrase it as a question. Phrase it as a question. When they lit the menorah, let's do it Talmudic style. When they lit the menorah, then, the first year of the miracle, the eight-day nights, was it a Hanukkah menorah? Or was it a temple menorah? Or was it a hybrid? Because every year since, you understand, understand the point? Every year since... When we light the menorah on Hanukkah, it's a Hanukkah menorah, and it's specifically to illuminate the darkness. Eight outside after dark. In the temple, even during the time of the, that initial year of Hanukkah, the, when the, the Maccabees and you know that whole story, the Hashmonaim, the Hasmoneans, they lit the menorah. They didn't light a candelabra of eight. They lit the temple menorah, and they lit it during the day, and they lit it inside, like the temple. It's not like they took it outside. They lit it where it was supposed to be. And yet we're going to say that that lighting in and of itself, that act, was an act of illuminating the darkness. Understanding that it came on the heels of a great defilement of a great darkness. So even though they lit the menorah inside during the day, on a seven-branch menorah, etc., but since it came on the heels, in the aftermath, of that great spiritual darkness that the Greeks introduced, when they lit the menorah that first year that they recaptured the temple, it was an act at that moment of illuminating darkness. 
And we perpetuate that, not by lighting the Temple Menorah, but by lighting the Hanukkah Menorah in a way that also illuminates darkness because that's the essence and spirit of the Hanukkah miracle. And that's what we're about to get to in mystical terms. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So just in that very first year when they lit the Hanukkah menorah outside and after dark, they still would have been lighting the temple menorah. We're still in the temple days. One second. The next year they only established a holiday. Right. So so you're saying the next year year, when they had... No, the next year. Uh, one year later. Yeah, one year later. On the year anniversary, so, so that year first year, right? They were so, lighting both, essentially. Well, the, everyone in the nation right. lit so at home, home, outside, by the Zohar. The Cohens were still... Oh, oh, that went on every day, until consistently. Until the temple was gone. Yeah, that, and the seven lights, every day, consistent. I know I keep on pointing over there. There's a menorah over there that got switched on me. But that's not the temple menorah, by the way. FYI, that's not the original. The, the original is here in this picture, right? You have, they lit this menorah every single day, from the time that they got the oil... It was a miracle for the first eight days, but then they had enough oil every single day until it was destroyed. They lit this candelabra consistently. And even next year, when Hanukkah came around and people were doing the at-home version, that's the thing. We think of it as, oh, I love Wheel of Fortune. Let me get the home version. Or let me get the home game of Jeopardy. Or let me get the Trivial Pursuit. You get where I'm going with this. Let's No, let's leave more. No. So, you know, you think it's the home version. It's not the home version. It's a completely different experience. Now, it was it, the energy of that experience was captured in that transition that, when they first recaptured it, because then it wasn't. Then they were in, in the illuminated darkness. But on that anniversary, if I'm home lighting this menorah, yes, I still had. Even though I never saw it, I knew that the menorah oh, yeah. inside had seven. That branches. was a, that was a service that happened on a daily basis. But you had a sense that it was seven branches. You you knew okay. it's nature. It's natural. It's the natural light that needs to be pumped in. You know, we're going to speak about Ba'avodah in our own spiritual service, what this means. You know, sometimes there's consistent, there's consistent inspiration. You have to plug in every single day naturally and have that light and illumination and what you're studying. And then there's what you need to muster in response to a situation of darkness. And that's a completely different type of energy. That's a completely different type of light. And that's the light of Hanukkah. So it needs to be born of darkness. It needs to come after. You have to feel the darkness and then is the opportunity for that light. And it's eight and not seven, and it's outside and not inside. And it's more like the bulls of Sukkot than the menorah itself, than the temple menorah itself. Although it's, it's, it, it, it came because of the temple menorah, it's not at all like the temple menorah. I know we had a few questions. Really. I just forgot the original reason that they were lighting it. Why were they lighting the menorah in the first place? It's biblical command. God says, when you build a house for me, Say it again. The Talmud says that we light it for God. And then God says, do I really need your light? I don't have my own light. You're wasting electricity. Huh? You're wasting electricity. Turn off the lights. Well, yeah, it's right. It's like an old, like, old Jewish house where it's like cold and dark and it's like you're freezing. Put on a sweater. You got to save the money for the bills, right? Uh, I yeah, I know those houses well. Uh, I'm in a house now that's cold and dark, but we, and we keep on the lights and we have the heat on. It's still cold and dark. But that's another story. That's an insulation issue. Yeah. This may be a question. For wait, wait, hold on. One second. Did that answer the question at all? No. I'm in the middle. Of, I'm in the middle of a question. So okay. So basically, God says in the Torah that when you build, I will. I want you to build a sanctuary. 
So originally, it was, there was a portable sanctuary called the Mishkan. And then later on, there was to be a, a permanent temple, the Beit HaMedish, the Holy Temple. And God says that there should be certain, certain features of that. So in the book of Exodus, the first half of the book, the book of Exodus, we all know. It's a story of slavery and, and freedom and plagues and splitting of the sea and, and Sinai revelation. That's all the first half. A lot gets done in one half of a book. The second half is there's like five portions, like a big, big chunk of, of, of Torah deals with God's commandment of how to build in detail, fine detail to the inch, how to build the, uh, the, the, the temple and all the vessels and all the features and all the, called Kalim, uh, various things, and also how they actually built it in practice and how they, they actually built it per the specs. And so one of the items there is the menorah, and God says it should be lit every single day, and it should be lit by the Kohen, and it should be lit with oil, and how much oil the Torah specifies. All of these details are specified in the Torah. So they did it, ever since the times of Moses, in the tabernacle. They, they had a menorah. So, so when they were traveling, they did a menorah. Oh, yeah, yeah, throughout the 40 years. So but that was out for everybody to see them. No, 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 even in the, even in the uh, portable sanctuary, they had curtains. There was an inner space. It didn't, okay, it wasn't a, um, it, it didn't look like, it wasn't a building of brick. It was a building of, um, it was a building of wood panels. But it, but it was, there were, it, there was an inner space. I don't have a picture of the Mishkan, but you would see it. It's also the same thing. It was like, they, they put up the walls of the courtyard outside, and then there was like a structure with curtains all around. You couldn't see it. You go in, but, you know, the Kohen went in, and that's where the menorah was inside. But it was really an offering of our life. So God said, the Talmud says, God says, do I need your light? The Talmud gives an answer. God says that the, the menorah is really to testify, to bear testimony that God's light is amongst His people. That's, that's the purpose of the menorah. To testify that God's light is found in the temple, amongst the Jewish people, etc. That's, that's what the light is for. So, is that to illuminate the darkness? Not to illuminate the darkness. That's just to, to be like kind of like a physical reminder of God's presence, of God's light, in a very steady, standard way. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> just knowing it's there. I would say it's kind of like, again, if we want to make this, we want to translate this practically. It's kind of like the knowledge that we have. It's kind of like the knowledge that we have. The consistent knowledge that God, God is with us, you know, that God's presence is there, you know, in nature, in everything, that God is, that God is with us. So, do we see it in like an obvious way? Do we, when we look out at nature, do we see like God's aura? Not necessarily. You know, <laughs> there are things we can take to see that, but not necessarily. <laughs> just saying, not necessarily do we immediately see that. Just like we don't immediately see the temple menorah, but we know that there's light there, a consistent, steady light. We know that God, all of this is powered by God. It's the consistent power by God. And then there come times when there are challenges to this reality. And then you need to come up with a greater light. Yeah. To show that we can't see God, but we know God is there. Exactly. It's kind of like that knowledge that God's light is there and is, it, it, it's consistently, steadily shining and illuminating and, and, and you know, uh, vivifying everything around us and, and, and projecting everything into being in a consistent, steady fashion. That's what the Temple Menorah would be. So you don't see it, obviously, unless, you know, unless you're a Kohen, maybe. And we can all be Kohanim, in a sense. Um, priests. 
Rambam, Maimonides famously says that not only those that are born to the family of Kohanim can be Kohanim, but anyone who dedicates their life to spiritual pursuits is, can be colloquially called a Kohen. So all of us can be a Kohen, which means that we're more mindful, so then we can walk in to the temple and see the menorah in a sense. We can see that light. But that's all the steady, consistent reality of God. Chanukah is something else. Nora, got you covered. Yes. Yes. Yes, correct. Great question. Great question. The Jewish tradition is that although we know how to do it, and we, we know, and in fact, in, in Jerusalem, there's something called the Temple Institute. And the Temple Institute, they have built out models of the Temple. They even have crafted already you know, some of the garments that the priests would wear. But the, uh, the traditional Jewish understanding is that the Temple, the Third Temple, there were two temples, both of them were destroyed. The third temple will come with the coming of Mashiach, with the coming of a, of a world of perfection where there's no more war, no more fighting. So the idea is, we don't want to put the, the what is it, you don't want to put the cart before the horse. You know, we want to wait till, we'll know, when Mashiach comes, we'll know it. We'll know it because the world will be a better place. And there won't be all the, the craziness that we see and the jealousy and the fighting and all of that stuff that we see, unfortunately, still today. So when the world, and Please God, it's, 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 it's immediate, it's very soon, it's, it's today. But when Mashiach comes, at that point we will have the opportunity to build a temple again for everybody. So that's, that's typically the idea. You know, again, it's not... Slight. But why did they build the first two before the Mashiach? They were, no, well, they were times of, of, of Jewish sovereignty and, and uh, there, were, there were also prophets then. There were prophets and kings. And they were communicating what God wants. Time to build a temple or the temple's going to be destroyed because you guys are messing up. It's going to be rebuilt. There were prophecies. Zechariah, I mean, there were, pro- there were the great prophets. Jeremiah, they had prophesied about, uh, you know, uh, Samuel. They, they, there were prophets that were talking about building the temple and then prophets talking about the, the destruction of the temple and the rebuilding of the temple. But theoretically, it happened again. Right? A prophet could come. And... Yeah, but theoretically. But, but the, the prophets... The, 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 the last known prophecies and, and traditions are that the next temple is going to be rebuilt with the coming of Mashiach. I got it. Okay. Yeah. So, so that, itself, it's all, that right. itself is a problem. Exactly. It's all per divine communication. It's, um, in, uh, in this, um, referring to illuminating darkness yes. and spiritual, is that one of our clues about why there's eight? Yes. Yes. You know why? We're going to get to it now. Yeah. Huh? We're going to get to it right now in this next paragraph. To explain. And by the way, this to explain, it's still mystical. It's not such a... Yeah. This is still... Uh, we put that in brackets. The original doesn't say to explain. It says, Dehine, behold, to explain. All right. To explain. The miracle of Hanukkah took place after the Greeks entered the sanctuary and defiled all the oils that were in the sanctuary. What's the context of Hanukkah? It's not your steady light. Steady light, yeah. We're good. We're shining. We're lo- no, 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 no. This is in response to a terrible darkness. Continue. Um, in other words, the overwhelming darkness of the Greeks was to such a degree that not only did they enter the sanctuary and defile it, they also defiled all the oils, all of the oils in the sanctuary. And here we get to a major theme. 
a theme that heretofore, up until now, we have not focused on. But I focused on when I brought up the email and the little teaser for this for today, I put it in there. His point is, look what they did. It says in the Talmud. Oh, where's that Talmud? Where's that? Um, anybody have the handout from the first week? The, the quote from the Talmud? Who's got it? We got extra Kabbalah points. <laughs> All right, look what it says here. Thank you. My um, Hanukkah, the Talmud says. What's the reason for Hanukkah? It's on the second half. If you have that page, it was on the second side. It says, for our rabbis taught on the 25th of Kislev, uh, okay, for when the Greeks entered the temple, they defiled all the oils in it. And when the Hasmonean dynasty prevailed against and defeated them, they, the Hasmoneans, searched and found only one cruise of oil, which possessed the seal of the high priest, which contained sufficient oil for only one day's alighting, yet a miracle occurred, and they lit the lamp for eight days from that oil. What's the point? Not only did the Greeks choose to defile the Heichel, the sanctuary, understand what happened. And to understand the significance of what happened, thank you, to understand the significance, revert back to the picture. They broke in not to the walls of Jerusalem, not to the retaining walls of the Temple Mount, not to the walls surrounding the Temple. They broke in to the Heichel. They broke in to this building that you see right here that housed the Holy and the Holy of Holies. That's what, it went all the way in. They didn't just go and make a, make a party in this big area. How did they know that that was in there? Everyone knew. It wasn't a secret. They knew. Everyone knew. So they didn't just go to the outer, they, didn't just, they weren't just in Jerusalem, they weren't just in this outer area, they weren't even just in, you know, the inner, the... the the temple walls itself. They went all the way into the building. Well, first off, you see buildings like, hey, what's in there? I mean, <laughs> but they also knew that there was some special stuff in there. They went in and they defiled it. Well, how did they defile it? They offered pigs on the altar. They did, they did, you know, they, 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 def- they did their defiling stuff. Good old uh, Greek defiling 101 handbook. They, they, they pulled out. They did their defiling. But then they did something else. <coughs> They, they made impure, they defiled all of the shemen, all of the oils, the shmanim, the oils of the heichel. It's not enough that they defiled the space and the altar and the menorah, they broke the menorah. It's not, it's not only that they, that they destroy things or mess things up. They went after the oil. That was another step. And what does it mean to defile the oil? It says the oil that had the seal of the high priest. You know what they did? They just broke off the seal. It's not like they used the oil to, I don't know what, uh, whatever. It's not like they used the oil. It's not like they drank the oil. It'd be weird anyway. It's not, but what do they do? They just defiled the oil. What do they do to defile oil? Make it non-pure. Not pure. What they put in, uh, they put in like impurities into it. What they they put in, uh, you know, red forty. What do they put into it? What did they do to the oil? They didn't do anything to the oil. They just defiled it. <laughs> what did they do to defile it? They just violated the seal of the high priest. But what's the point? The Greeks were not satisfied with with defiling the, the, the temple or the sanctuary itself, the Hegel itself. 
that went after specifically the oil. And mystically, Kabbalistically, this is going to be extremely significant to understand the nature of the, the specific nature of the Greek darkness and the specific nature of Hanukkah's light response to that darkness. To understand the power of the light of Hanukkah in response to the darkness, you have to understand what the darkness was. There was darkness. The Greeks brought darkness. What kind of darkness? Defiling oil darkness. Yes. Oh, we're going to get into that. Good, great question. Part of the answer, by the way, is going to be that the power of it is because it doesn't make sense. But we're going to get there in a second. Go, go, go. I'm, I'm, I'm still with you. So, who made the Greeks do this? Because I thought Alexander the Great was a good king. He was a good king. There was a fellow named Antiochus, who was a bad king. We're going to talk about the motivation, though. So why, like, what was the, be- like, let live and let live. Like, why, what, the Jews were doing their own thing. Like, what was the issue? We're going to get there. Did Alexander the Great die after the Alexander the Great. When did Alexander the Great live? He lived later. Oh. I believe he lived later, right? I thought he was around 300. 30th century. Huh? Alexander was later. This is after, this is... Alexander the Great came after the story of Hanukkah. Yeah. Okay. Thought you had a question. Sold. No. <laughs> like an auction. All right. Um, wh- yeah. Okay. So we're, this is a work in progress. We're building. We're building something, and he's the point of chapter two is to just give you the kernel. This is also a beautiful way of learning. You could give the elaborate explanation right here. Start the elaborate. But it's nice to actually see how you have the whole answer packed into a tight space and then see how that develops. It's a cool learning, teaching, study situation. All right. Um, so his point again is Hanukkah is about illuminating the darkness. And what was the nature of the darkness? Not only did they defile the Hechel, the sanctuary, they specifically defiled the oils. They went after the oil. So what is it about oil? I'm glad you asked. So he now talks about oil according to Kabbalah. Holy oil. Oil corresponds to the level of Kodesh. Holy. As it says, oil of holy anointment. Oil. Holy oil. Holy oil. Holy oil. That sounds very Jewish. All right, now hold on one second, one second. So he says, what is oil? Oil, it says, it says in scripture, where's this verse? 30... Where is this from? Exodus. Oh, there you go. Oh, huh, look at that. It's in the Torah. It says when it talks about the fact that you need to light a menorah, and the menorah has to have oil. Remember I said this, all of this is biblically, biblically commanded, not Hanukkah, but the temple menorah is biblically commanded. So it says, the oil, you need to use oil. Shemen Mishkat Kodesh. Oil of holy anointment. Oh, I don't know if this is actually about the menorah. Maybe this is about anointing the, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, or the priest, or maybe the king, whatever it is. It, it, but it, it mentions oil and the idea of Kodesh of holiness. And the Kabbalists, the mystics say, you know what, oil is, oil is synonymous with this idea of holiness. I want to, before we move on, before we, we continue with the next line, a few lines, we need to speak about what is holiness. 
Kodesh. Kodesh, we, we translate typically as holy. But Kodesh does not actually mean holy. The real meaning of Kodesh is not holy. It means something else. Does anybody know what it means? Separate. Separate. It means, oh, the foot. Which one do we have here? Oh, ta-da. 30. 31. Look at 31. I should remember these. I, I wrote them. But <laughs> second paragraph in 31, the, whole, the Hebrew word Kodesh means both holy and separate. So it also means holy, but it also means separate. In truth, these two meanings complement each other. One who is holy is so, is so precisely because he is distinct, separate in degree from the masses. So what is holiness? Holiness is really the idea of separation. It's, there's everyone else, and then, wow, that person is holy. When you say that person is holy, or that thing is holy, what you're really saying is that they are distinct, or separate from everything else. So everything else is here, you know, everyone else is here, and then, wow, that person is holy. They rise above everything else. So holiness is the same as distinctiveness, distinction, separateness, being separate in a good way, in a higher way. Because you could be separate also in a low way. But Kodesh, separate, has a... Oh, by the way, I'm sorry. Kodesh can also be used to connote separateness in a low way. We once had a Torah studies class on this. A Wednesday night class. The word Kodesh. What's an example of that? The Hebrew, the biblical word for harlot. What? Remember, remember, we, remember we had that class? Yeah. Is Kadesha. It says there should no, not be a Kadesha amongst Benot Yisrael, amongst the daughters of Israel. Kadesha. Kadesha means doesn't mean you shouldn't have any holy people. And also it's for men. Don't be a Kodesh as well. Kodesh. I'm not sure exactly the, the vowelization. Kodesh and Kodesha. So don't be a... You know, and that, that means, again, deviating from the norm. But that would be in a lower way. So the point is that Kodesh means, in essence, separating out or being distinct, Right? either higher or even potentially lower. But typically Kodesh is used as holy, which is a higher type of distinctiveness. Oh, and that's, and that's, so why is oil, exactly, so that's, that's the continuation. So why is oil, Kodesh, why is oil holy? Because look at the properties of oil. I actually meant to bring in a plastic cup and water and oil, but eh, pretend like I did. <laughs> Humor me. I did. You just can't see it. It's like the Temple Menorah. It's there, but you can't see it. So you pour in water, any liquid, then you pour in oil. Or you pour in oil, and then you pour in water. It doesn't make a difference. What's going to happen? The oil floats. The oil rises. The oil, the property of the oil, listen to this. It's incredible. The innate, essential, intrinsic, inherent property of oil itself is Kodesh. Is separateness, distinctiveness, is rising above and not mingling with. That's the nature. It's not something that's taught. It's not something that's acquired. It's not like, oh, oh rookie oil, <laughs> you have to mix with everyone else. It's oil in its essence floats and arises. What that tells us is that oil is the mark of hope. It's not the mark. It's not like oil makes you holy. Well, Hanukkah, we eat enough oil. Yeah. Maybe we are holy. 
hopefully we're holy and not uh, just uh, you know consuming lots of oil. But the point is that oil symbolizes the concept of this separateness and distinctiveness and holiness that is the mark of something that is Kodesh. Does that make sense so far? Yes. Now, the interesting thing is, if you all the vinegar salad dressing, yes. even when you shake it up, right. you still see the oil bubbles. Right, it still remains distinct. It remains distinct. Yeah, absolutely. You look um, 100%. In other words, even if it's quote-unquote mixed in, it's still not mixed in. Mm-hmm. It's still it's self-contained. It's still self-contained. So oil equals holiness. Understand where we're going with all this. The, this, the premise is that the, that the Greeks brought darkness... And when we let the menorah respond to that darkness, and we're bringing light into the darkness, right? That's what he said. The Hanukkah menorah is to illuminate the darkness. We're trying to figure out what was the unique nature of the darkness. So he said, well, what did they try to do? What, what did they do? They not only busted into the temple, into the sanctuary, they specifically focused on defiling the oil. What is oil? Holiness. What was their beef? With the concept, we're going to develop this in chapter 3 beyond, they, their issue was with the concept of holiness. We're going to explain soon, or at some point. But this is, right, their issue was with oil, their issue was Kodesh, their issue was this holiness and distinctiveness. Continue, holy. Holy Kodesh is word unto itself, similar to oil which floats on top of all liquids and does not mix with them. Now, Kodesh, it says in Zohar, Kodesh, Mila Begarmei. Mila is word. Begarmei is Aramaic for on its own. Kodesh is a word on its own. So, when you refer to something as holy, you can, or the word Kodesh, you can either say as Kadosh or Kodesh. You see there in footnote 32. There's two variations. Kadosh and Kodesh. Kadosh is when you are referring to something that is Kadosh. So Kadosh is used as, uh, you see over there, it's used as an adjective to describe something that is holy. So you would say Kadosh, uh, whatever, something is holy, it's a ho- or a holy something. Whereas Kodesh is holiness unto itself. What's the difference? Even in, huh? Kodesh is a noun. Kodesh is a noun. That which is holy. Is it a noun? Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, it's a noun. Kodesh is the noun, and Kadosh is the adjective. The difference is they both mean holy, but one is used in juxtaposition to another word, whereas the other, that's Kadosh, whereas Kodesh is used on its own. Mila Bagarme, it's a word unto itself. Kodesh. Kodesh you use to refer to something that is inherently holy, that stands apart. Now, you're, again, you're obviously referring to something, but it's not used as a bridge word or as an adjective. It's used as a word unto itself. That again expresses how distinct the element of Kodesh is, that it's not even an adjective, it's a noun in, in, in and of itself. So that's how distinctiveness, this, this level of Kodesh is, this level of holiness is, and this idea of distinctiveness is. Okay. Good? So it's almost originally holy rather than moving toward holy? Yeah, or the way, we, the way it's explained in the, in the subsequent in the footnote is like this. Kodesh, when the Torah writes the word Kodesh, it's written without a vav, which means it's written kuf dalet shin. 
And the, the O, the Kodesh, is just signified by the, by the imaginary vowel, dot. It's not there. It's, you don't, it's typically not written Kuf, Vav, Dalet, Shin. Kodesh is Kuf, Dalet, Shin. There's no Vav there. Kadosh is always written with a Vav. Kuf, Dalet, Vav, Shin. Kadosh, even though they both have the O sound, one is Kodesh and one is Kadosh, so they both have the O sound. But in, when the Torah, when, in biblical uh, etymology or biblical language, you're not going to see the word Kodesh with a Vav at the beginning, but you will always see the word Kadosh with a Vav. Now, in modern Hebrew, they probably write it both with a Vav because they typically spell it vowels. Yeah, is it? Kodesh, Kodesh. Even Kadosh, you're saying? Even Kadosh. But, no, Kodesh. Kodesh, yeah. So Kodesh, you, you, in the biblical, so maybe today you would write the Vav in there to indicate, you know, whatever. But in biblical, when the Torah writes the word Kodesh, there's no Vav. When the word Torah writes the word Kadosh, which is the adjective, not the noun, then it's got the Vav. What is the Vav? What's the significance of the Vav? So the mystics talk about how each letter has an energy to it. The energy of the Vav is, and, and, and the energy of the letter, now we're going to take a step back. The reason why every letter, every Hebrew letter has an energy to it is because Hebrew is the language of creation. Since God created the world through speech, through articulating speech, speech is, is articulated through letters, through language. Language is letters, right? The most basic element of language are letters. Individual letters combined together to form words, etc. And ideas. So the letters are the building blocks. Kabbalah teaches. That's all biblical. God said, let there be light, there was light. That's all biblical. And our sages in Perk Yavod and Ethics of the Father say, Ba'asar ma'marot nivra olam. With ten utterances, ten, ten acts of speaking, the world is created. So all of that is traditional. Traditional, you know, what was not studied in the secret societies. In the secret societies, in Kabbalah, it says that what is, how, how does creation happen through the letters? Because every letter is like a building block. It's like DNA. It's like a building block. One building block. So every letter carries a divine potency, a divine force. And based on the combination of the letters, you get a different type of DNA. You get a different type of spiritual energy born of that combination. It's no different than if you're a chemist and you take different chemicals and you mix them together, you're going to be able to produce different things. So you take a little bit of this, magnesium, or whatever it is, you take different, different elements and you mix them together, you're going to get one type of thing. You take a different combination, even if it shares some similarities, but you put a few other ones together, you get something else. So in Hebrew, the words... Of Torah, the words of creation, God's words, are not just random words that have random meanings. Cup. The C-U-P of cup doesn't transfer the energy to this cup. It's, it's just a word that we associated with that thing so that we can differentiate it from table. So we call this cup this table. Why? I don't know. That's just, uh, that's just what we chose. Whereas in Hebrew, in Lashon HaKodesh, in the Holy Tongue, the language of things, as the Torah refers to them, as God refers to them in creation, the act of creation, is not just random, but it actually carries the energy creating and sustaining that thing. So the word Shemesh, which means sun, the energy of the sun of Shemesh, is captured in the shape, in the form of the Shin, the Mem and the Shin. All of these things are captured. So, an Evan, which is a stone, the energy is captured with the Aleph and the Vet and the Nun. And in another class also, once I think we once went through a few letters, and we explained what the... There's a, there's a great book also called Letters of Light. Letters of Light. You can look it up. It's written by Rabbi Raskin. Ari Raskin. 
from Brooklyn Heights. So he wrote a book called Letters of Light that explains all the letters, 22 Hebrew letters, and their significance mystically. Their shape and the meaning of the letters. Because every letter, sorry, every letter also, also has a meaning to it. Like Aleph. The letter Aleph, the first letter, also is related to the word Aluf, which means like a master or a king. And it has a certain shape. A Yud here, a Yud there, and above and between. Anyway, every letter has a shape which is significant and a meaning which is significant and a, the way you write it which is very significant. And, it, and, it, and it, it relays that energy when you write out a word like that. The word Va... Yeah. I go to that class. We should do that. Letters of Light. That's a cool book. You have the book? Yeah. That's, yeah. Okay, good. We should do a class. Maybe we should do a class in the book. This is good. I want to do one on numerology. So we have now two in the hopper. The numerology and the letters. And they're related, but, but one is focusing more on the shape and the meaning, and one on the... On the new. See, here's the thing. They're all really layers in meaning of Hebrew. Right? There's the shape, which is significant. There's the meaning of the letter, the letter itself. Like, bet is like bayit, which means house. And the structure is like an open... It's like, it's got an expanse to it. Right? The letter bet. So, every letter has a meaning, has a shape. The way you write it has a numerical value, numerology, so maybe we'll kind of combine these things. All right, we'll have to figure out this. They're also never, never, they never touch either. The letters have to write. They cannot touch. Every letter has to have its own distinct energy. Even when you, when you combine them, each one has to have its own identity. Now, well, let me just round out one more thing. When you write the letter Vav, because we're talking about Vav now, right? Kodesh has no Vav. Kadosh has a Vav. What's the Vav? Vav is highly significant in the way that you write it. You, when you write a vav, you take your pen, or your quill, if you're, you know, old school, your fountain pen, if you're, like, super cool. So you take your pen, a feather, oh, someone was there last night, oh, so that's Yiddish, that's what we learned last night, feather, is feather, shockingly, quill pen, feather. So you take your pen, your feather, and you, you touch it at the top of the, you know, at, at the top, and you move it down. That's it. It's a vav. A vav is a straight line. But it's written in a downward motion. You don't write it up. You write it down. What's the meaning? Vav is hamshacha. Hamshacha. What does that mean? To draw down. To draw, to pull. To elicit. To pull down. It's to move something from being out of touch to being within reach. It's the idea of drawing, of calling forth something. Vav always is about movement. Vav is always a movement from a, pre- from a previous state into a new, more revealed or more accessible state. That's what Vav is. The energy of Vav is I'm moving something. I'm moving something. I'm drawing forth something from the hidden, from the mysterious, from the beyond, from the out of touch, the out of reach, whatever. I'm moving something from there and I'm bringing it here. That's what Vav is. Vav, I'm drawing it down. Spiritually means I'm calling forth light and energy from on high and I'm bringing it into my life. I'm calling it forth into this world, into, into reality. And how do I do that? I do that in different ways. I do that in reaching upwards through, through prayer. I reach upwards so that it can call back down, call forth a response from on high. So that draws down. It's the Vav that draws down. And there are other, when I do a mitzvah, it also draws down, uh, draws forth from above. And again, it's not spatially, literally spatially. It's not like God is up. God is right here. 
but just because our minds work in a more linear fashion, so we kind of associate physical, spatial qualities with spiritual idea, which are not spatial in that sense at all. So when we talk about up and down, it's not literally up and down, but it just helps us understand, and that's the way you physically have to draw it somehow. Nothing, not, not every letter can just be a point or nothingness. You have to actually physically do something. So you indicate this idea of calling for drawing down something that is on a more spiritual level into something more tangible with the Vav. So the word Kadosh, which has the Vav, is the idea of moving something spiritual into something tangible, i.e. it's the step, it's, it's something holy, but something holy that's, more, that's made more accessible. In other words, it's holiness, but it's made more real. It's made more like immediate, real, tangible. So it's less abstract. It's less separate. It's basically taking that which was separate and, and making it less separate. It's like taking the oil and mixing it in a little bit. That's what Kadosh is. Whereas Kodesh, Mila Bagame, a word on its own, Kodesh without the Vav is as it is in its pure state. It's the holy as it is in its pure state, initial state, removed from everything. It's not as I'm drawing forth from that pristine core or that pristine you know, element. It's the way it is on its own. That's the Kodesh. That's Kodesh. Mila Begarme, a word unto its own without the Vav. By the way, by the way, this idea of the Vav has another amazing holiday significance. Matzah. Matzot. When the Torah talks about Exodus and the Matzot, it's so interesting. You know, typically we all know the story of why do we eat matzah? Why do, on Passover, right? This is, I know we're mixing holidays. It's okay. It's okay. I'm a trained rabbi. We're allowed to do this. <laughs> on Passover. But don't try this at home. Don't, oh, yeah, do not try this at home. You never know. Do not eat your matzah with your with your latkes or your jo- or, huh? or in the in the sukkah. Or in the well, no, we're not even going there. That would be way complicated, right? While eating a hamadash. No, let's let's keep it. Let's just focus on tuna. No, but let's focus on Pesach for Passover for a moment. I, if I ask you a simple question, what would you answer? Why do we eat matzah on Passover? Why? That's what they ate. Good. What else? Right? Is this the story that we all know? When the Jews were running out of Egypt, I need a homage for this. Rini, do you mind passing? Uh, oh, Marnie, you, uh, Marnie, you got it? Okay, when the Jews were running out of Egypt, they were running so fast, right? So they put the bread, they put the dough on their backs, or whatever, have dough, will travel, and it baked, they didn't have enough time for it to rise, it baked quickly, and that's it. That's what we eat matzah, right? Yes? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. We all know the story. What if I told you? What if I... Let me just, let me just read. I'll read you, listen. That's a good... That's um, a good... Um, deal. It's a rabbi thing. It's a rabbi thing. Let me, let me just read. Let me read a little bit. Hold on, hold on. This is before the Exodus, before the 10th plague. You ready? It says like this. 
This is before the tenth plague, before they were running out. Before, before, before. It says like this. And that night, the night of Passover in Egypt, they're supposed to offer the Paschal lamb. And put the door on the door put the blood on the doorpost. Remember the story? Yes, 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 yes. And that night they shall eat the meat. They should eat it roasted over fire, together with matzot and bitter herbs. Does anybody understand what just happened? What did God tell the Jewish people to do on the night of Passover before they were running out while they were still in Egypt? Say it loud. Eat matzah. Eat matzah. Were spo- on the first night of Passover, they were... Sp- well, not the first night of Passover. On the night of the Exodus, the Exodus happened the next day, during the day they left. Right? It baked in the sun, right? In the- during the day they left. But that night, God says... What, how are you supposed to eat the Paschal lamb? Roasted over fire. Al matzot. et Eat the meat in this night. Siliesh. Roasted on fire. Umatzot. Amarorim yochlu. Matzah. And herbs. Eat it together. Nice sandwich. You get the meat, your lettuce, and your bread. But it should be a flatbread. What's the obvious question that you can ask? Forget that obvious question. Doesn't this doesn't this rock? That's yeah, that is an obvious question. But I'm going for something else, something less obvious. That's obvious. Doesn't this rock your whole notion of Passover? You always thought that why you're eating matzah because didn't have enough time to bake. Baba Mises. didn't have enough time to bake. They were told to bake matzah. They were told to make sure it doesn't rise. Understand? What just happened here? Yeah. Let, let me continue. Just because I have the floor anyway. <laughs> For seven days you should eat matzahs. God said, this is before. You can't make this stuff up. It's right here. I'm not. Shivak, this is before the tenth plague. They were not running out. They were still in Egypt, comfortably as slaves. No, no, I'm just kidding. They were in, in Egypt. They weren't running. It wasn't it. Shiva Jomim Matzos Tochelu. You should eat matzah for seven days. You should eliminate all leaven from your houses. You should guard the matzos. You should observe this day throughout your generations as an eternal statute. On the first month, which is Nisan, on the 14th day of the month in the evening, which is the 15th, right? The night of the 15th, which is Passover, the first night of Passover, you should eat matzahs until the 21st day of the month in the evening. For seven days, you should eat matzahs. Why do we eat matzah? Because God said to bake matzah. Then you have, now we need a siddur. Sorry. Sorry. Some things you can't plan. Then, yeah. yeah they had, they had stuff. They weren't like, they weren't like so super deprived. They had, they had what to eat. They had to work, slave labor. But they had, they had what to eat. They weren't, they weren't starved. Now, take a look at what the Haggadah says. So why do I have this book? Because in this book, we have part of the Haggadah. What's the Haggadah? The Haggadah is what we read on Passover. I hope it's in here. If it's not, I'm in trouble. It's not. Oh well. You have to trust me. 
In the Haggadah, it says as follows. This matzah, we point to it. This matzah that we eat. Why? Because the dough of our fathers did not have the chance to rise because they were running out of Egypt. That's what we say on the night of Passover in the Haggadah. And then you open up the Chumash, the Torah, and what does the Torah say? Why do we matzah? Because God told us to. It's not because uh, pragmatically they didn't have a chance to rise. Baba Mises. Maybe it also didn't have a chance to rise the next day, but they were supposed to bake matzahs for seven days. You with me on this? Yes. So now what do we do? On the edge of our seat. Some have something to do with Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Bob. That's right, it's Bob. Glad you reminded me. No. It's all in so the it says in Kambala's as says in Kabbalah that there's two types of matzah. There's the matzah before midnight and the matzah after midnight. There's the matzah kodem chatzot, before chatzot. Chatzot is the mid, midday, mid, the midpoint. Chatzot, midpoint, midday. The mid can either be midday, which is noon, or mid, midnight, you know, depending on what you're, what you're dividing in half. So chatzot halayla, the middle of the night, midnight. There's two types of matzahs. There's a matzah before midnight, before chatzot, and the matzah after chatzot. What's the difference? Yes. Why? Oh, say it again. Hold on, we're, 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 we're developing. What happened at midnight? What happened at midnight? That night of Passover, 3,300 years ago, what happened at, at midnight? That's when the Exodus happened. That's when the... That's... Back. Let me read. I'm sorry. Let me read. read, 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 read. We gotta get this. We gotta get this source biblically. Look what the Torah says. Torah says a few verses later, a little bit later after this mitzvah of the of the of the matzah, says, "Oh, death of the firstborn Jewish people leave Egypt." That's my caption. It was at midnight that God struck every firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh sitting on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner in the dungeon, and every firstborn animal. Pharaoh rose at night from his bed, both he and his servants in all Egypt. There was a great outcry in Egypt, for there was no house devoid of the dead. He called personally for Moses and Aaron at night, and he said, Get up and go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel. Go and worship God as you said. Take also your flocks and your cattle as you said, and go. Bless me too that I should not die as I am a firstborn. The Egyptians urged the people, the Egyptians urged the people, the Jewish people, to send them speedily from the land, because they said, We are all dying. This happened, when was the plague? The, the tenth and final plague, the end of the firstborn, it happened at midnight. There's matzah before midnight that God said, before midnight, roast your lamb, eat it with matzah. There's matzah to be eaten with mar with bitter herbs before midnight. But you know what before midnight is? Before the revelation, before this great plague, before the revelation of God. That's before midnight. Then there's the after midnight matzah. And that's the matzah that is permeated and, and filled with a, an infusion of this divine mirror, of this divine presence, if you will, that is born of the plague. God, thanks. So that is post midnight matzah. So there's pre midnight matzah, matzah, human matzah, if you will. 
Post midnight matzah is matzah infused with the divine, the, the divine presence, if you will, the divine miracle, the, the, the plague. The plague, of course, brought destruction, but it, it represents the concept of God, God appearing on the scene. It's a revelation of God, and it happened at midnight. So the matzah that we eat, so one matzah is with a vav, and one matzah is without a vav. The matzah before chatzot, before is the matzah without a vav. Even though here we're saying that Kodesh is higher, but the Vav represents something great coming into the experience. The Matzah, right, but it's a little bit different because here the one without the Vav is higher. But when it comes to the Matzah, it's the other way around. It's not contradictory, it's just it's contextual. Here, Kodesh means separate. So separate without drawing down is even higher. Whereas the matzah without a vav is just matzah that you baked. Matzah with a vav is the matzah that represents the matzah that was baked. Matzot. When you write matzot, the plural, you could write matzot in the Torah. Sometimes it writes matzot without a vav. Matzot mem tzadik tov. Sometimes it writes mem tzadik vav tov. The one before midnight is matzot without a vav. The one post chatzot. I'm saying chatzot. Midnight. The one before midnight is without a vav. It's just human bread. God said to do it, so we do. The one after midnight is the one that has the vav, that has the additional infusion of, the, of, the super, of, of this, this potency, this power of God. What's the point of all this? The matzah, everyone's asking, or wondering, is that the matzah that we eat today is post-exodus. Correct? It has the vav. It has the vav. And that's why when we say, why do we eat this matzah, what do we say? Because we were so, we were running out post the Exodus. We were running out. We don't say because God gave us the commandment, because that's referring to the pre-midnight matzah that they ate that first night before the revelation. We eat post-revelation matzah, baby, right? We eat the post because we're we're post-Exodus from all time. Ever since that first time, we're post-midnight, that original midnight, right? We're after Exodus. We've all seen the movie. It's already done, right? So we're post-midnight. Therefore, the matzah that we eat is the width above. And that's what we say. Why do we eat this matzah? Not because God commanded us, which is true that He commanded us, because that was all pre-midnight. We eat the post-midnight matzah, but we eat it before midnight, today. It's a hybrid. No, 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 that was another wrinkle. We're supposed to eat the matzah before midnight today, but it's still of the le- of the sort of, because God says to eat it at night, not the next, not like after midnight. So we follow that commandment that I read before, eat matzah for seven days, so we eat it before midnight. But the nature of the matzah, the spiritual nature of the matzah is the post-midnight matzah that has the extra infusion of divinity, of, of, of God's presence. And that's why when we say in the Haggadah, why do we eat this matzah? Because of God redeemed us, and then we were running, etc. It's to evoke the sense of God's presence in that matzah, as opposed to the one that was just eaten the night pre-Exodus. Yeah? Yeah, that's good only the best. Alright, so this is all, this is all um, what Kabbalah teaches about the Vav in the context of Passover and Matzah. Now, hold, hold the question for one sec because we just have a few more minutes. So let me, we're going to wrap up and then we're going to take more cues and hopefully get some A's as well. Let's look at, we're still bottom of 30, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're, still, we're in the middle of a paragraph here, Holy Oil. What we want to do is uh, do a little bit more. Yeah. So it follows. It follows that the defilement of the sanctuary's oils by the Greeks is in this aspect more grievous than their defilement of the sanctuary, even though the holiness of the sanctuary ranks highly in the ten levels of holiness. Now hold on. 
So yes, there is a top ten list of holiness. That's what emerges from this paragraph. Pre-letterman, there were top ten lists. Now, the, even this, what is he saying? Even though the Heichel, the sanctuary, is a very, very holy place on earth, and the fact that the Greeks defiled the Heichel, again, what is the Heichel? The Heichel is this building. This building where all these special things, the menorah was, all, the, the Greeks defiling the Heichel is a very big deal in a negative sense. It's a, it's a very, it's a, it's a tremendously negative, spiritually negative act. Tremendous. Yet, yet, we can say for our purposes, i.e. in the context of Hanukkah, their defiling the oils was even worse. And spoke to their destructive agenda. Right? That's why it says in the Talmud that when they defiled the temple, then they went after the oil. It's like, it's the climax. It's like, what did they really do? They defiled the Hechel, the sanctuary, which is terrible. And then they went after the oil. Not that the oil is always, it's not like oil is holier than the, than the, than the Hechel, than the sanctuary. But in the context of our story and what they were trying to do, the oil represented a greater act of sabotage and, 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 and creating a, a spiritual darkness greater than the defiling of the sanctuary of the Hegel itself. That's what he says in parentheses in this aspect. You saw that? Because in this aspect it was a more grievous act of defilement than the, the oil was than the sanctuary itself. Not that in general oil is high, oil, you know, if you're, oil trumps sanctuary. No. But in this context, the oil was, the oil defilement was even a more grievous act than the sanctuary defilement. Even though the sanctuary is the second most holy place on earth. And the Talmud delineates the ten levels of holiness. Or Maimonides does. Um, take a look at footnote 36. I'll read it. Because I'll explain what all these places are. Footnote 36. Do you see that? The holiness of the sanctuary, the Hegel ranks one, only one level below the Holy of Holies. Or the holiness of the Holy of Holies. Remember, the Hegel is in the, in the, the building, right? This, this, the temple, innermost temple building. But within that, there are two chambers. There's what we call the Hegel, or the Holies. And then there's the Holy of Holies, that small innermost chamber that only the, the high priest went once a year. So that was the holiest space on earth. But the one right outside of that where the menorah was, was number two. So take a look at the ranking here as we see it in footnote 36. Oh, and then the parentheses and the, uh, the brackets, yet in the context of what the Greeks wished to achieve, the defilement of the oil was more severe than the, than the general defilement of the sanctuary. So here are the ten levels of holiness. Number one, walled cities within the land of Israel. They're holy. Jerusalem is even holier. The Temple Mount is even holier than Jerusalem. You know, we're focusing on more specific areas. It's going from the... The big to the small. Then the Chayil, the outer limits of the actual Beit HaMikdash, is, 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 is the next level. By the way, what is that? That is this space over here. The platform. You with me? The, well, yeah, it depends what you is consider. Is this the mount? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Temple Mount is here. Then you have this area. Is the neck is even holier. And then inside this structure, right, the general temple structure, right, which would be this, Right, because we're looking at it different angles. But this would be—it's called the women's courtyard. Then there's this is Ezrat Nashim. This is the women's courtyard, the big, the big area over here. Then there's Ezrat Yisrael. Then there's the Israelites' courtyard, which is this small space right over here. 
Then the Kohanim's courtyard, then the Ezrat Kohanim, the priestly courtyard, which is over here. You, we keep on going more in, inward. Then you have the Kohanim's uh, Sorry, we did that. Number eight is between the altar and the antechamber. That is in this space right over here. Then you have number nine is the sanctuary, which is right over here. And then you have the Holy of Holies. So those are your ten levels of holiness. And by the way, each one, if you wanted to go to the next level... No, it's not like a video game where you have to look at more lives and stuff. It sounded like that, it's just a level. Um, but it means that it required another degree of, of holiness, of purification. So not everyone that was able to go in, in level one could go into level five, eight. Sometimes you had to be a Kohen, you had to be a high priest. Depending on where you were trying to, to go to, there maybe were more, more things that, that, that needed to happen before you were able to go there. The point is that the sanctuary itself is number nine or... Uh, Letterman would do the other way around, right? It would go to the top ten. It would be number two. It's really number two. It's the number two holiest space really on earth. That's the, that's the Hechel. And the Greeks defiled that. And yet, in our context of what the, what, of the Greek agenda, their defiling of the oil was even worse. Now, we're going to do... Oh, we got to stop. Yep. It's that time of day again. We got to stop here. It's eleven ish, and um, okay. So next week, next week we're going to pick it up over here, and he's going to point out. Let me just tell you what he's going to point out. He's going to say that not only did the Greeks make an effort to defile the oil when the Hasmoneans came to reclaim the temple. What do we see? What's the narrative that we read about? They cleaned up the temple. And then they had to have a special miracle of finding the oil. Again, the focus is that there was something special about the oil, both in the defilement of the oil and in, this, in the salvaging or, or, or finding the oil. There was, there was a miracle involved with that as well because the oil cuts to the heart of our discussion and the, the power of Hanukkah. So we're going to get into this a little bit more. Hopefully next week, easily, we'll finish chapter 2. I say easily with, uh, at this point with confidence, but next week we'll see. Um, and then we can jump into chapter 3, which breaks everything down and strips it from the mystical to the exceedingly practical. It's like absolutely immediately like relevant. Like boom, 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 boom. Like wow, these are challenges that I'm going through today. I can't believe this is the story. That's what we're going to do chapter 3 and on. Chapter 2, oil, defilement, holiness. The next, the next section in chapter 2 is going to be about supernatural, miracles and whatnot. And then we're going to break it down to what it really means in the day-to-day for each of us. All coming up in Victory of Light. All right, quick word, a few